0: Tonight's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening, I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the Word this morning. I know you're not supposed to giggle as the reading of the Word ends, but I, I could not help but listen to the ending of that reading. Therefore, the world hates you. Please be seated. It's just, it doesn't seem like a, just a positive way to just launch a sermon, but that's, that's the reality. Um, are we okay or... Mike's okay? I'm just not sure. Sometimes I speak louder than the mic. I wasn't sure if I was overdoing it. All right. Um, yeah, so how many of you, you, whether you've been following Christ for a few months, uh, we've had a couple baptisms just recently this summer, so new believers, or whether you've been following Christ since you were a small child, a number of years, how many of you, since following Christ, have experienced the reality that those who are in the world, who are not, not believers, they might be your coworkers, they might be your fellow grad students or undergrad students, roommates, parents even, siblings, family members, that as you express your beliefs and your values as you follow Jesus, not only are they not shared, but individuals are somewhat hostile to what you believe. How many of you experience that? Okay, well that's, that's the subject matter of, of today's today's message. We've been going through the series on greater things. We've been taking a look at Jesus, um, his exhortation to his disciples on the night of his betrayal. He's getting them ready for his departure, and he wants them to understand. And he tells them in John 14, verses 12 through 14, he says, "Uh, you're going to do the very same works that I've been doing. In fact, you're going to do greater works than these. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you ask, my father in my name, I'm going to do it for you. That the Father would be glorified through the Son. And so that's the, that's the theme of what we've been looking at. And we've seen that Jesus has told his disciples in John 14, I know that sounds incredible, but I'm going away and I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you my spirit. And we've seen in John 15, uh, Jesus give them a parable so they can understand how that spirit works in them with the, with the vine and the branches. And now he, he basically says, okay, that's going to be, you're going to do greater works, but it's going to be hard. Not the greater works part, but the fact that people are not going to applaud your greater works. So it's important that we understand three things, three things about persecution. And this is what we're going to look at as we look at the text in John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, the scripture that you heard, and all the way through chapter 16, verse 4. We're going to take a look at the reality of the hatred of the world. The fact that the world hates you, the second thing we're going to take a look at tonight is well, what's the reason for it? What's the reason for it? And the third thing we're going to see is how do we respond to it? How do we respond to it? So uh, let's go to the Lord and let's, um, let's ask him to, to uh, pour his spirit on upon us so that we might, uh, so we might believe the gospel and, and work, uh, work tonight. Father, we just we can't do anything apart from you. Uh, We believe that. Jesus has told us that in your word. Uh, Spirit, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the gathering of the saints tonight, that we can be back indoors. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for all of your mercies. We are thankful, Jesus, that you've given us your spirit, and we need your spirit right now to help us understand this word. So open our eyes, open our hearts. Help me to preach and teach so that Christ is exalted, so that he increases Uh, Lord, in in our estimation of his worth and his majesty, Uh, Lord, may your name be hallowed tonight. Uh, We thank you that we get to celebrate communion later, and we just pray that everything about our time tonight would bring glory and honor to you. So, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first point, the reality of the world's hatred. The reality of the world's hatred. Let's take a look at verses 18 and 18. And 19 and chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I made a vain attempt earlier to italicize and put in bold all the occurrences of the word world, and I missed two. That just shows you that it's there so much that it's easy to miss. Whenever you're reading Scripture and you see a word that's repeated over and over and over and over again, you should pause and say to yourself, hmm, what does that mean? What does that mean? So the word world here is cosmos. It does not mean terra firma, as in solid earth, as in world, the the created physical order. What it does mean, the literal translation, it means adornment. It means orderly arrangement or order. So when Jesus uses the phrase the world, and John uses the phrase the world, and Paul uses the phrase the world, and James uses the phrase the world, it's found over 40 times in the New Testament. What that means is the way the sociological, uh, the way people are ordered, where they order themselves, and the way they fall into line, the way that they interact, so you've heard the phrase, birds of a feather, they do what? They flock together. So there is a sociological pattern, a way that people organize themselves, that is, that is really um, according, to, according to tribes. So uh, part of the world system, there's familial structures. So I'm part of the Simpson clan Gary being the head of that clan, that's my dad, and then I, then Ryan and Caitlin and, and, and Stacy. So we have, a, we have a familial unit, so that's a sociological structure. And um, there's all sorts of structures. There's, there's, you can identify with people in terms of you're all part of the Iowa City culture. So many of you are students at the University of Iowa, so that's another subculture within a culture. There's political affiliation, not that anybody's aware that that's a thing. Right. I mean, you can't get away from that. There's uh, there's political ideologies. There's there's religious religious affiliations. There's socioeconomic um, uh, structures. There's there's gender. Uh, there's race. There's all sorts of different ways that people interact. Now, before the fall, before the fall, that would not have been necessarily a bad thing. The reason that people affiliate together in these socio- sociological structures is for the good of themselves. In other words, there's safety, there's identity, there's security. And, and when we work together in these quote-unquote tribal units, it's, it's for the good of human flourishing. So when you work together with a family, it's always better to do stuff. W- we are designed for community, yes? makes sense? So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And yet, and yet, because... Anyone with a pulse has a sin nature and is born a rebel against God, a sworn rebel that, that, that loathes the idea of falling into line to a sovereign God. There's a sense in which this tribalism, now instead of being a good thing, becomes, well, it's a good thing for your tribe, but not the other tribe's. Now all of a sudden there's competing tribal units and there's, there's family strife and there's family division and there's division within cities and there's division amongst races. There's division amongst religions. There's division amongst political ideologies. There's division amongst nations. And the division goes on and on and on. And, and that's the world we live in. So whenever Jesus, whenever any of the, the authors of Scripture use the phrase this world, it's almost always in a negative sense. Now, Jesus will say this world, and then he'll say the world that that is the age that is to come, and he'll contrast that. He's saying this present world and the structure is jacked up, so it's not a good thing. And James says anyone who's a friend with the world is an enemy of God. So right out, it starts negative. This world, this world, this world, they hate you because they hated me first. Now, the, the ruler of this world, numerous times, the ruler of this world is, is Satan. John chapter 12, verse 31, John chapter 14, verse 30, John chapter 16, verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, 1 John 5, 19. All of these different references, there is a sense in which um, the followers uh, or the, 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 the people that are involved in these all various tribes that inter, inter, interlock and interact and interface they are unwittingly, unwittingly following the prince of the power of the air. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who's not a Christian is a Satan worshiper, formally. But it does mean that unwittingly, these these systems, these structures, are satanic. And that's a freaky thing. So Jesus, in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days, and Satan comes to him and tempts him. And he says, if you bow down and you worship me, I have the authority, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Now the Greek word is pontas, it means all, every, every single solitary, systematic structure he's got his hands in. And he says, I'll give it to you. And of course Jesus responds appropriately. Now notice what, when Jesus rebukes him, here's what, notice what he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, you don't have the authority over those kingdoms, because he does. He wouldn't refer to him as the ruler of this world if he wasn't the ruler of this world. Now, we don't see that. We don't see that. But Jesus does. Jesus does. So that, that helps us understand the, the, uh, uh, the, the system, the structure. Now, what does he state? He says, the world hates you. And understand, it hated me first. If you are of the world, they wouldn't hate you. But you're not, so they do. Pretty cut and dry. It's cut and dry. Now let's let's go to the reason, the why, the why behind the hatred. What is the reason for the world's hatred? So take a look at at verse twenty, start here in verse twenty, and Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, well they're gonna also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Okay, let's just pause right there for a second. Why would anyone hate Jesus' teaching? Why would anyone hate Jesus' teaching? I want you to think about this. If you were to, you're, uh, you're, you're at the lab, um, you're back at the dorm, you're at work, you're hanging around people that are quote-unquote uh, not followers of Christ, they don't know Jesus, and, and you just did this you did this experiment. Say, in your estimation, I'm curious, when you hear the phrase Jesus teachings, what does that mean to you? What what are Jesus teachings? What would they say? What would what would be the something that would be characteristic of someone thinking, well here's what Jesus taught. What do you think? Love people. Okay, the number one thing is love. I, I, I did this experiment this morning in North Liberty. What do you think? Love, right out of the gate. Love. Is that true? Absolutely. We've already st- we've, we've seen that in the first couple messages of this series. Love one another as I have loved you. The two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. So that is absolutely true. So why would someone have a problem with that teaching? Well, it's the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the problem. See, wherever Jesus enters the con—enters uh, the situation, uh, anytime he opened up a scroll like he did in Luke chapter four, and we, when he read Isaiah 61, it, it, the, the rabbis, when they taught, like someone like me, I come into a synagogue or, a, or whatever, and, in Jesus day, and, and I would preach this message, and and then the elders of the synagogue would get together and like, well, what did you think of Brooks' sermon? Oh, I thought it was okay. He was a little bit jerk, but you know, it was—it was accurate. Amen. They would say the word, amen, and that would signify that whatever the rabbi said was marked as true. So Jesus rolls into the scene, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he doesn't wait for the amen. He says it twice on the front end of the sermon. He says, amen, amen, or if you have an NIV, it'll be translated, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, what I'm about to say, you don't have the right to judge. I'm telling you that this is true. Why? Because I am the truth. I am the way, and I am the life, and none of you can come to the Father except through me. What? He is an absolutist to the core. Talk about dogmatic. And not only is he dogmatic, he makes himself the center of the dogma. And so everyone, he gets done with that sermon in his hometown, what do they want to do? Throw him off a cliff. That's his first sermon, his first public sermon in his hometown. And the result is, let's toss him off the cliff. Jesus taught about love, but he also taught about exclusive worship of him and him alone. He demands complete and total and unyielding devotion and allegiance. So that's why the world hates his teaching and hates him. And what Jesus is saying is, they're going to hate you too. So, I want you to think about how you see yourself, okay? What, what tribal affiliations make you you? Of course, now if you're in Christ, you say, well, I'm in Christ. That's my identity. And you're right, but there are other factors. There are other factors. So, before I became a Christian, I became a Christian at the age of 21. I was... Uh, uh, it was 1988. I was a um, a sophomore at the University of Iowa, a redshirt sophomore. So that's that's my context. That's when I came to know Jesus. So let's let's take a look. Before it was Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday, 1988, is when I gave my life to Christ. So let's say the day before Good Friday. Good Friday, I was not in Christ. So what constituted my identity? Well, I was a white male. I was 21. 20. I hadn't turned 21 yet. Um, I was a University of Iowa student. I, I, my, I identified as a wrestler in an idolatrous way. That was my sole identity. That's what gave me my self-worth. I was a Simpson. I was a Simpson. So that, that's, that's who I was. That's what made me unique. That's what made me me. That's how I, I derived my self-worth from all those different tribal affiliations. My, my, my association with my family, the Simpson clan, my associate with the wrestling team, the fact that I was an Iowa Hawkeye. So all of those things made me me, right? And so then, then I become a Christian, and then on the day after Easter, on Monday, I wake up and I look in the mirror. I'm still white. I'm still a male. I'm still affiliated with the wrestling program. I'm still a Hawkeye. I'm still a Simpson. So why would the world hate me? Because at that moment, my allegiance switched. You see, before I would do anything to associate with this crowd and this tribe. If the leader of these said tribes said jump, I would say how high. And it wouldn't matter what they told me to jump through. But now, now I have a new king. And this new king is not named Gary Simpson, nor was this new king named Dan Gable. Or, or whatever tribal leaders that I associated with, this new king has a name and his name is Jesus. So immediately, I decide that I have to, I have to tell my family what I believe. My family's not on board with what I believe. They are now. If you're thinking, oh, Stacy and Ryan and Caitlin? No, I'm talking about when I first became a Christian. My mom and my dad. So now all of a sudden the words that Jesus said I didn't come to bring peace I came to bring division. I will set mother against daughter, father against son, and that became a real thing right at the gate. I knew that my profession of faith was going to was going to freak my parents out and it scared me to death. I can ne- I'll never forget being at the at the at Perkins in Newton, Iowa on a Friday night after a high school football game, I went back to my hometown. And I remember sitting in the booth, eating pancakes after a football game with my father who'd had a few cold ones, telling him that I've placed my faith in Jesus and my, my leg was uncontrollably shaking. I was t- absolutely terrified. Now, he didn't choke me or anything like that. There wasn't any physical altercation. He just basically brushed it off and said, well, that's good for you, but it's not for me. So immediately there was a sense of, okay, now, now there's, there's, there's conflict between me and my dad. And Jesus brought that because he's my new king. That's what, that's what he's talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Your tribe gave you your identity, your social structure, and provided safety and security for you. And now Jesus says, I want you to abandon everything and follow me. And if I ever contradict your tribe, you follow me, not them. Now here's the thing. Your tribal leaders and your your tribal partners will not understand. And they will not say, look at you with your integrity. They'll question you. They will assume your motives are are impure, and that somehow this new Jesus thing has totally got you off board. How many of you, since you've been following Christ, your family members have literally or at least insinuated that what you are believing in now is is cultish? Anybody? I want you to notice that that's not just one or two hands. That's quite a few this is orthodox Christianity. This isn't a cult. This is what Jesus said. Undivided devotion. That's just the thing. You're in the vine now. That's your new identity. You have a new king. You have a new king. So back in 1980, years ago, gosh, this is uh, just for fun. How many of you were born before 1980? Wow. I'm getting super old. Uh, so Ronald Reagan was president, 1980, and he appointed C. Everett Koop as the Surgeon General. Now, C. Everett Koop was a Christian. He was born again, and he was extremely committed to the pro-life agenda. And Republicans loved him. He was part of their tribe, right? And that's why he was appointed. And, and the Democrats, how do you suppose they thought of him? What do you think they thought of him? They hated him. So they wrote all sorts of pieces about how stupid he was and how unqualified he was for the job. And then the AIDS pandemic hit and hit hard. And C. Everett Coop commissioned a study on AIDS and came out and accused the administration of trying to keep this down. Trying to downplay AIDS. And he said that the administration was, was, was putting a, trying to put a lid on this. He blew it up and he said, you need to pour money into this for research for education, so that we can bring about a cure for this. And now the Democrats said, look at this man's integrity. And what do you suppose his, other, his, his tribe said? They were furious. They were, the, the op-ed pieces were all, he is turncoat, he is this, he is that. And one of his peers told him this, you can forget about future political appointments because you're too independent. And you know what I say? Praise God that C. Everett Koob had the guts to say, my king is Jesus, not Ronald Reagan. He outed himself with both tribes because he had one king, and that king was not the president of the United States. I wish there were more people with guts like that in our country today. That wasn't in the notes. So... I I mean it though. I look out at our nation today and we are so divided. We are so divided because our primary allegiance is not to King Jesus. It's to some secondary or tertiary tribal leader. So if you're going to be hated, at least be hated for Jesus' sake. And not Trump's or Biden's. So let's take a look at three ways not to respond to the guaranteed persecution that you will face. How not to respond. First of all, assimilation. That means just fit in. Be a chameleon. Embrace the world's values. Okay, embrace the world's values. That's, that's not... The church has been fabulous at that in a bad way. This is when the church takes on the values of the world so the world will continue to like them. And, and compromises on doctrine, compromises on ethics. Because the culture believes this, well we're going to change our approach to Scripture. We're gonna change our, we're gonna dumb down the holiness of God. We're gonna dumb down the calls to sexual purity. We're gonna, we're just gonna fit into the world and the world will like us. And you know what? The world says you're irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. Assimilation is not the way to go. Or you can go the other extreme and and withdraw. You can buy a plot of land, hundred acres in Wyoming, and you can move there, and you can just not interact with anyone. Or you can move. Well, you can become Amish, or you know, these are different different ways that uh, that the church believers have done this. It's a separatist mentality. Get away from the world. Get away from the world. The only problem with that is you can't be about the Great Commission then. You kind of need to be interacting with the world to make disciples, yes? <laughs> it should be intuitive, but, but churches that take that approach can't make disciples. And the third one is, is rampant in, in, in our culture, and that is conquest. Conquest. You, you heard the phrase culture wars? What does that mean? Well, we got to go to war to win back the culture. How many of you have heard or even said it yourself? We need to take back the country. Is that, is that a familiar, familiar phrase? What does that mean? Take it back from whom? Who do we take the country back from? Well, back when, when Obama was in office, the, there was a political movement, the Republicans, we need to take it back from the Democrats. And now the Democrats, we need to take it back from the Republicans. Uh, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about when Christians say we need to take our nation back. What do they mean? Back from whom? If I look in Matthew chapter 4, who's the prince of the power of the air that oversees all the kingdoms and the ruler of the world? Satan. So we need to take it back from Satan? Can you take a nation from Satan? Is that even possible? Here's what happens when, 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 when... when churches, or the church, universal, adopts a conquest mode. Who do you have to conquer? You have to conquer flesh and blood. But our, our battle's not against flesh and blood, Paul says. It's against the prince of the power of the air. But if you're going to conquer, if you're going to take something back, you're going to crush people. The church has still not recovered from uh, from the uh, the uh, the Crusades, something that happened almost a century ago, the Church still has a stain, and therefore its witness to Muslims and Jews has been hampered, because the Church thought it was a good idea to take back Jerusalem. That that absolutely undermines, absolutely undermines what Jesus died to accomplish. What did he he tell Pilate? He told Pontius Pilate, Pilate says, are you a king? He says, yes, I am. I'm a king. You've said so. But my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my disciples would what? They would fight. But it's not of this world. Anyone on the side of truth listens to me. And what was Pilate's response? What does truth have to do with anything? You know what he 's implying, Jesus, you talk about this this abstract concept of your kingdom, which is not of this world, and, and everybody lies this is this truth is following you well here 's the deal, dude. I have spears, soldiers, and the might of Caesar. I have power, you have truth i 'll go with power i 'll go with power and when when Christians fall into the trap that we 're going to take back something, they mean we 're going to use. Political influence or power to subjugate others to do what I want them to do. By the way, don't not hear me say that you should not be salt and light in your community and that you should not be politically active. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you put your hope in that, you are barking up the wrong tree. Jesus stood before Pilate later after he'd been beaten. And Pilate's like trying to free him. It's like, listen, I just want to set you free. Won't you talk to me? Why won't you talk to me? Don't you understand I have the authority of life or death over you? And that got Jesus' attention. He's like, you don't have any authority except that which is granted to you by my Father. Do you understand why Jesus could say that? Because he knew what real power was. Real power is not about conquest. It's the upside down kingdom. The world thinks we need to conquer. Jesus said, I need to lay down my life. So if that's not what we're supposed to do, we're not supposed to assimilate, withdraw, or conquer, what are we supposed to do? Well, let's take a look. Our response in verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. You will bear witness. Now that Greek word, witness, is where we get the English word martyr. Now some of you are like, I'm out. I'm out. The word martyr, that the, 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 the is transliterated martyr, it, the witness, it means to testify, to testify about your union, your confession of faith, and your baptism. And, and, and it, it's to say to your world, it's to say to your former kings, your former tribal leaders, and your current people that you affiliate with, that you associate with, is to tell them, I have a new king. My new king is Jesus, and he's the one who calls the shots in my life. And they will immediately question whether or not that's wise. I remember when I first became Christian, I was reading a commentary at O'Hara Airport on the way to a wrestling meet, between flights, flipping through a commentary on Genesis. And my coach, Dan Gable, comes up to me and says, what are you reading? Commentary on Genesis. He's like, hmm the first thing out of his mouth, you're not going to go all passive on me, are you? He's immediately concerned that my king is going to lead me down the wrong path. Now, that's not persecution, but it does indicate, it communicates that the people who don't know Jesus will question your every move. And so to bear witness is to tell them the truth about who Jesus is and who you are in Christ. That's what it means to bear witness. Bear witness to the truth. And in our culture, that doesn't get you killed. But some cultures it does. Some places you will be a martyr. I read on Voice of the Martyrs this morning, a website, it's an organization. Highly recommend getting on there. You can pray for persecuted church worldwide. I was reading about this Sudanese Christian and in this uh, in this article, it talked about this this Muslim cleric, a man who was influential in his community, in north north part of Sudan where the Christians are a, a persecuted minority, they're second class citizens, they, they're they're beaten. There's all sorts of terrible things happen to them, and this Muslim cleric, influential, prominent in his community, he saw this Christian, who who kept taking care of the Muslim poor in his neighborhood and taking care of other poor people in his neighborhood that no one would care for. And so he approached this Christian and he said, why do you continue to care for our poor? And he said, because Jesus became poor on my sake that I might become rich and possess all things. So I will lay down my life For your people, for my people, for all people, because my king laid down his life for me. To which this Muslim cleric cleric said, I don't have your heart. I want your heart. And he gave his life to Christ, and now he is a persecuted evangelist in northern Sudan. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's not assimilation. That's not withdrawal and that's not conquest. It's laying down your life. It's the only way to choose those other three will be to mar the witness and defame the name of your king. And then Jesus says, In John 16, I said these things to you so you won't fall away. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? It's not a trick question. Because there's a good chance if you're not prepared to get smacked in the mouth for loving your king, you might fall away. The first sign of heat, the first sign that you might not get that degree or that placement in the grad program, if you actually say what it means to follow Jesus... The first time your potential lover indicates that they're not cool with Jesus and you have to take a stand and you might lose that relationship, there's a thousand and one different possibilities, but Jesus wants you to know stand firm. Stand firm and be a witness. And if necessary, be a martyr. You may not get that appointment that you want, you may lose that relationship. Your parents might accuse you of joining a cult. You may not be economically prosperous and you may be mocked and you may be ridiculed, but understand this. I am with you to the end of the age and blessed are those who persecuted for my name's sake. Jesus wants us to know this is reality, so we're prepared. So stand firm. Start with coming to him. If you're not a Christian, place your faith in him. Some of you are like, that was the worst marketing job for a pitch on why I should come to Jesus. And, and, and see, that's the thing. That's the truth. Jesus does not sugarcoat it. You will be persecuted. So come to him anyway. Because here's the deal you may be persecuted in this life, but you will have eternal life. Apart from him, you will not. So come to him. Abide in him. For those of you that are in Christ, stay. Don't walk away. Cling to the vine. Let his word remain in you. Stay in community. Be encouraged. Encourage one another. And bear testimony. You've seen two baptisms within the last month. If you're a follower of Christ and you haven't been baptized, go forward with your testimony. Let your family members know. Let your friends know. Let the community know. Jesus is my king. And I'm scared to death, but I'm going to go forward in public profession of faith and I'm going to testify, witness, bear witness to the truth of who I am in Christ and what he's done for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were not only persecuted, but that you were crucified. And that was your plan from the beginning, to bear sin, my sin, our sin, and to give us the gift of your righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would stir in hearts tonight that people would give their lives to you, that we would abide in you, and that we would testify and witness to your greatness, Lord. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.